take three weeks to work through this chapter. Our text for today is going to be just the first five verses. So as we begin, I'm going to read the first five verses for us, and you follow along as I read. John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Have you ever heard someone pray and been moved just by hearing someone pray to the Lord? I remember when I attended a, a church many years ago, the pastor of that church, I remember when he would pray in a, a public service. It was always moving because of the, the profound and rich theology that he would pray. But yet at the same time, it was out of a heart that understood and knew the God that he was praying to. He felt a real richness in the words that he was praying, but you also felt that he was speaking to someone that was near to him. And when you hear somebody pray like that with, with great biblical truth and profound theology, and yet at the same time they're praying out of their hearts to, to someone that they clearly know, a God that they know, it, it's moving to hear them pray. And I thought of that as we read these words, this beginning of Jesus praying. And if there was ever a, a time to be moved by hearing someone pray, this is it. You see, Matthew and Luke record what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. But that prayer was really a, a model prayer that Jesus gave to His disciples. You remember, that was what precipitated that prayer. It was the disciples coming to Him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus gave them that model of prayer. And He, he gives that model of prayer to us. And yet, if we want to read the true Lord's Prayer... That is a, a prayer given from the heart of Jesus concerning Himself. We should consider John 17 to be in many ways the true Lord's Prayer. This is, this is a prayer from the heart of the Lord to His Father. Verse 1 tells us that He prays this prayer after He had spoken these words. This is, places it in its context. You remember Jesus has been speaking to His disciples for the last number of chapters in John. It appears that at this point they've 
now left the upper room that they were in where they enjoyed that last Passover meal. In fact, at the end of chapter 14, verse 31, we have the, the note that he tells his disciples, rise, let us go from here. That's the end of chapter 14. And then we move through chapters 15 and then 16. And it seems as though Jesus is giving this teaching to them as they journey out from the upper room toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where they will be in chapter 18. Following Jesus' prayer in, verse, in chapter 18, verse 1, they're going to go across the Kidron Valley and into the Garden, where Jesus will ultimately be betrayed and arrested. And so it's as if, or it's along that road as they, they are making their way from that upper room, out to the garden that Jesus has continued to teach his disciples. And wherever they are on that, on that walk, Jesus pauses after having taught his disciples a number of things that they're going to need to understand when he leaves. He stops and he spends several moments in prayer to his father. One 17th century preacher described this chapter this way. He says, It is the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth, and it followed the greatest sermon that was ever preached on earth. Jesus has given very profound and encouraging instruction to his disciples, and now he pauses and begins to pray. I want us to consider the question, why does Jesus pray aloud for his disciples to hear? Why did Jesus take the time to pray for his disciples to hear at this point? I think to summarize the answer would be that it was instructive for his disciples that he stop and pray at that moment of time. You see, his prayer was really a continuation of the many things that he had been teaching them. We'll see that as we look at these first five verses. And then in in coming weeks, as we look at the rest of this prayer, we're going to see that what Jesus is praying here is very much a continuation of the things that he's taught his disciples about himself. His prayer is also a sort of model prayer for his disciples and a model prayer for us. Really in a different way than the Lord's prayer of Matthew and Luke being a model for us, helping us understand how to, how to pray for ourselves, how to approach the Lord in prayer. This prayer of Jesus gives us much to learn about prayer as we study it. Let me address the second reason first, briefly here, and then the rest of the sermon will unpack. We'll see the continuation of what Jesus has been teaching His disciples through His prayer. But I want us just to consider And observe Jesus in prayer as he takes the time to speak to his Father. There is a posture of worship combined with the awareness of of God's nearness to him. You see that when he prays, he lifts his eyes up to heaven. There is clearly a transition between his speaking with his disciples, his having conversation with his disciples, and now his attention is directed to heaven. His his attention is directed away from conversation with his disciples and directed to a conversation with one in heaven. 
And that one, he, he calls out by name when he prays, Father. The basis of Jesus' prayer was his relationship with his heavenly Father. That relationship gives him unfettered access to, to come before the Lord in prayer. And that certainly provides us a, a sort of model. Our, our prayers are to be prayed out of a posture of worship, recognizing who it is we're praying to, the God of heaven, but also understanding that our prayers, or we come before Him in prayer because of our relationship with Him as our Father in Jesus. But before we go any further in, in looking at specifically what Jesus prays, I, I want to just pause here for a second. I want us to, to marvel at the glory of what we're reading in John 17. Because I think it's easy for us to be familiar with this passage, as I'm sure many of us are. And it's easy for us to, to jump in and want to see what Jesus is praying without taking a, a moment just to, to be staggered by what we're reading. We're reading the record of God speaking to God. This is God the Son speaking to God the Father. In fact, this is the most extensive conversation recorded in the Bible between two members of the Godhead. There is something truly profound taking place in this chapter. And I think before we just jump right into it, it it's worthy for us to just pause and consider what we're reading. We're reading a conversation between two members of the Godhead. So if there's, if there's any other any one portion of Scripture that we ought to pay particular attention to, it probably would be this. We get here a window into the mind of God, into the heart of God. We get a window into the counsel of the Godhead. We'll explore that even today and, and in coming weeks. But we get a glimpse into what is going on in the, the will and purposes of God by seeing this conversation between God the Son and God the Father. It's truly remarkable. So this truly is the Lord's Prayer. I want us to begin looking now at the heart of Jesus' prayer. And the heart of Jesus' prayer, as He begins to pray here, it really doesn't take much work to figure out. If you're paying attention as I read through that, there was one word that probably jumped out at you. It actually occurs five times. Either the word glory or glorify occurs five times in these few verses. And this is really the heart of Jesus' prayer to His Father. It's glory. In fact, the two requests that Jesus makes in this first section of, these, of this prayer are both pleas for God the Father to glorify Him. The two requests that He makes in this portion of the prayer that we're going to look at today are petitions for God the Father to glorify God the Son. This might initially seem arrogant and selfish. And if you or I were to pray this sort of prayer, that would be selfish for us to pray for God to glorify us. But when it's God the Son speaking with God the Father, it's anything but arrogant and selfish. This is the heart of Jesus Verse 1, Jesus asked the Father, Glorify your Son. 
And then in verse 5 he says, And now, Father, glorify me. The value of studying this prayer, of peering into that window of the counsel of the Godhead is to understand the significance of what Jesus is asking for here. Jesus is asking to be glorified. What is the significance of what Jesus is asking for here? And as we study this prayer, as we answer that question, I want to draw our attention to two primary headings. I want us to see the glory of the Son in the work of salvation. The glory of the Son in the work of salvation. And then the glory of the Son in the heavenly realm. The glory of the Son in His work of salvation and the glory of the Son in the heavenly realm. First, let's see the glory of God in the work of salvation as Jesus prays for that out of His heart here before His Father. Jesus begins His prayer by reminding His Father that the hour has come. You see that in verse 1. He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. This is the basis upon which He is going to request to be glorified. It's because the hour has come. This is a profoundly significant statement. And if you have been here with us throughout our study of John, we've seen several places where Jesus either himself mentions or John, as he writes, refers to Jesus' hour. Back in chapter 2, verse 4, when he was at the wedding in Cana and the wine ran out and his mother came to him, letting him know that the wine had run out, expecting him to do something about it. His words were to her, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 both record instances where his life was spared. He was, no one laid a hand on him or he wasn't arrested because his hour had not yet come. His life was spared because his hour had not yet come. Just previously in chapter 16, verse 32, he says to his disciples, The hour is coming when you will be scattered and you will leave me alone. In chapters 4 and 5, Jesus speaks of a coming hour. In chapter 4, he's speaking to the woman at the well. And he says, The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. In chapter 5, he says, There is an hour coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Throughout John's Gospel, this coming hour is a key theme. It's something that we, we've, we've seen several times. It's something that we've been building up toward. Okay, the hour is not, is not here yet. It's not my hour. The hour is coming. And now here Jesus declares in verse 1 of chapter 17, the hour has come. The hour has arrived. What is this hour? The hour has come for Jesus to now be glorified. You see, this is the culmination. This, this hour that has come is the culmination of a plan that originated back in eternity past. It was set in motion before the foundations of the world. Within the counsel of the Godhead, there was a plan that was conceived 
whose culmination arrived in, in this moment. The hour has come. This moment, as God the Son speaks to God the Father, this moment, Father, that we have been planning for centuries, for millennia, it's now here. The moment has now come to accomplish the plan that we set out to accomplish before the world was even created. It's time for God the Son to be glorified. But that glorification is not going to come through the means that we might expect. First, I want us to observe that the glorification that Jesus is talking about here is a mutual glorification. He says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. It's going to be through the glorification of the Son that the Father also is glorified. There is going to be a mutual glorification. The hour has now come. The fulfillment of this plan is going to bring both glory to the Son and to the Father. The means by which the Son would be glorified would also bring glory to His Father. This meant sacrifice on the part of God the Son. This meant sacrifice for Jesus. After all, once we get through chapter 17 and into chapter 18, we will observe and, and study what initially seems to be the demise of Jesus' ministry. Certainly the demise of His life. He is going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. And He's going to be crucified. And it appears at first, to be the defeat of this so-called Messiah. But the reality is that Jesus' death on the cross will be the means by which the head of the serpent is crushed once and for all. We've been studying in our adult Bible study prior to our, our gathered worship through the so far the historical portion of the Old Testament. And one of the themes that we have drawn out in that study is, is this theme of this ongoing battle between the serpent and his seed and the woman and the seed of the woman as it plays out throughout the history of God's people. There is a battle that has been raging up until Jesus' coming. There has been a battle between those who oppose God, those who are the seed of the serpent, and those who are God's people, the seed of the woman. And that ongoing battle, which has its ups and downs. At one point, the seed of the serpent is winning. At the other, another point, the seed of the woman has the upper hand. As it plays out in, in history. But here, at the coming of Jesus' hour, that battle will be decided once and for all. And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent as God promised back in Genesis chapter 3. And the way that victory comes is not through a military defeat, but it comes by God in, in Jesus removing the power of the adversary. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent by removing His power over us. That is our bondage to sin. That's what the coming of Jesus' hour is about. 
The coming of Jesus' hour is not primarily, at this point, His exaltation as a king. Rather, at this point, the coming of His hour is to be made a sacrifice. It's to win that battle that has been raging. That the Godhead, before the foundations of the world, determined and created a plan by which they would win this battle decisively. And so it was on the cross that Jesus bore the wrath of God for sin. So that those who come to faith in Him experience forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin's bondage. Therefore, the power of the adversary no longer holds over them. And it's through this sacrifice of Jesus, through His death on the cross, that He is actually glorified. And by this sacrifice, He brings glory to God. Here's how. It's by this sacrifice that the multifaceted glory of God is displayed. We know well the, the ways in which God's glory is displayed at the cross. All at once we see all of these attributes of God colliding in one event. We see the wisdom of God displayed. Again, God, is, God has been working out this plan throughout the ages. And Paul writes in Galatians that in the fullness of time, Christ came into the world. God has been, in His wisdom, orchestrating the events of history to bring about the fulfillment of His plan. His, his wisdom, His sovereign power is on full display. We also see the love of God and His grace displayed at the cross, whereby Jesus is offered as a, a means by which sinners receive salvation. It's also through the cross that the righteousness of God and His justice is displayed. Where, where sin is dealt with. His love does not mean He glosses over sin. His love at the cross comes together with His righteousness and His, judge, his justice as He pours out His wrath upon God the Son in our place. So the coming of Jesus' hour was His work on the cross through which the glory of God would be uniquely displayed. And so the Son would be glorified. He would be lifted up. And we, we think back to John chapter 3 when Jesus talked about being lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up. And He is lifted up first on a cross. We see the glory of God demonstrated uniquely at the cross. Now the recognition of what Jesus has done through, the, through His work at this hour, through His, his work on the cross, what, what Jesus has done, the thing that He is anticipating as He prays here to the Father, what He has done demands a response. You remember what John's stated purpose for writing this gospel was? We've mentioned it several times. It's been 
a few weeks. You remember John 20? It says he's writing these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus' work demands a response. What Jesus has done demands that we respond to that in, in some way. And John's goal in writing this is that we would come in, in belief. We would come in faith, repenting of sin, trusting in the work of Christ. That we would have our eyes open to see this death on the cross as being a glorious thing. And this is what, precisely what Jesus acknowledges in his prayer as he continues in verse 2. As he anticipates being glorified in a, a way that we would not expect. He reminds the Father that the Father has given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The apex of Jesus' work is the gift of eternal life that He gives to those whom the Father has given to Him. Jesus' words indicate to us the surety of, of the gift that we receive when we believe in Jesus. Those who have been given to Jesus from the Father are given eternal life by the Son through His work. How does one come to receive eternal life? This is certainly a, a key question as we consider Jesus' prayer. An aspect of His being glorified and the Father being glorified is for certain people to receive eternal life through the work that they are accomplishing. So how does one come to receive eternal life? Jesus answers this question in verse 3. After He promises to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given Him, He goes on to say, this is eternal life. And He's not so much defining eternal life here as He is indicating how one comes to eternal life. This is how one comes to eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This was a point that Jesus had hammered home time and time again during His earthly ministry. This is a point that He made over and over again as He interacted with the Jewish leaders in earlier chapters of John's Gospel. He told them multiple times that they, the reason they didn't know Him was because they didn't know the Father. They didn't know the One who sent Him. Therefore, because they did not know the Father, they didn't know the Son, they didn't believe in the Son, and eventually they would put the Son to death thinking they were doing a good thing. 
But this point that Jesus made over and over again is that the way of salvation only comes through knowing God in Christ. The only way that we have eternal life with God is by knowing Him through the One He has sent, His Son, Jesus Christ. This knowledge of God is not merely a mental acknowledgement of the existence of God. Rather, it's an experience of a relationship with Him. To know God is to, to know His love for us, to experience His love for us. To know the depths of what He has done in Christ for us. To understand who we were apart from Him. To understand our absolute dependence upon His grace for anything that we are and have. That's what it means to know God. One who truly knows God in this way is able to understand the the many facets of, of God's character. All of those attributes I mentioned earlier, from God's wisdom, to His sovereign control, to His love and grace and mercy and righteousness and justice. All of these attributes of God are only understood and experienced by those who truly know God. The natural mind does not understand the wisdom of God. The natural mind does not truly understand the love of God. The natural mind defines the love of God in a a way that benefits me. But one who knows God defines God's love in terms that God demonstrated His love. And God demonstrated His love by offering His Son as a sacrifice. Paul writes to the Corinthians that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who do not know God, those who do not believe in God, what Jesus, the coming of Jesus' hour, what He is going to accomplish is absolute foolishness to those who are not believing. Only those who who know God are able to understand the working out of His attributes. That's not to say that we fully understand what God is up to. We can't understand that. But we can, we can understand God in categories that the natural mind is not able to comprehend. And so my encouragement for for those of us here who who are believers. That is, we have, we have had happen in us what, what John writes. We have, we have read these things and we have come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And through believing on Him, we have life in His name. If that's, if that's you today, if, that, if that's us, we are believers in the saving work of Jesus. My encouragement to us is to to relish in our relationship with the Father. Rejoice in the fact that we have the same Father that Jesus has. His Heavenly Father is our Heavenly Father. And we are able to comprehend His glory in ways that many others are not. 
Let us rejoice. In the relationship that we enjoy with our Heavenly Father. If you're here today and you have not yet believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you have not yet believed and have life in His name, my plea to you is that you would observe the purpose and plan of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, as they have, they have accomplished all that is necessary for salvation. And it's through believing in the work of Christ on the cross that you have life in His name. That's the glory of the Son in His work of salvation. God accomplished salvation for sinners in such a way that He receives maximum glory. He works a plan of salvation that is totally opposite from anything that you or I could have come up with. And it's all so that He would be glorified. As He glorifies His Son through His sacrifice, the Father is also glorified. That's the glory of the Son and the work of salvation. Secondly, I want us to see the glory of the Son in the heavenly realm. We know that the existence of God the Son did not begin that night in the stable in Bethlehem or even in the womb of Mary. That's not when God the Son began. Rather, God the Son has eternally existed as a member of the Trinity. He is the pre-existent Word that John writes about in John 1. He is the creator of all things. He is God. And in that council of the Godhead, God the Son was given a task of coming into the world to be its Savior. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2. When he exhorts us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus came to earth, when he was born, in that stable. He laid aside the, not his deity, he didn't lay aside his deity, but he laid aside or he he caused the visible view of his glory to be veiled as he took upon him, he was clothed in human flesh so that the glory of his deity was, was not visible, it was veiled. He also set aside the experience of the glory that he enjoyed in the presence of his Father, in the presence of the Spirit. The the three members of the Godhead, the Trinity, lived in eternity past in perfect enjoyment of one another. 
full satisfaction in the presence of one another. They did not need to create anything to be complete and fulfilled. We, we cannot even comprehend the experience that the members of the Godhead enjoyed. And yet Jesus did not, did not count, in the words of Paul, equality with God, a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to at all costs. Rather, he, he laid that aside and took on human flesh, humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's about to happen in, in John's Gospel. He's hours away from dying on the cross, fulfilling the, the task that he has come to do. And that's exactly what he prays to his Father about in, in verse 4. He is anticipating what is about to happen. He's, anticip- or he's, he's remembering the life that he has lived as he prays, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The work that Jesus has accomplished is not only the perfect obedience to God's law, Jesus has revealed the glory of God as He has walked the earth. He's been reminding people the truth of God, the Word of God. He has called people to repent of their sins and believe in God. And He will in a matter of hours lay down His life in humble obedience to the will of His Father. And perfectly fulfill the eternal purposes of God. The whole reason why He laid aside the glories of heaven to dwell on earth in human form. He is about ready to perfectly complete and fulfill that task. Jesus acknowledges that to the Father in verse 4. And then His prayer in verse 5 is because of that. Now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory of that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is anticipating the joys that await as He will not only be crucified, but He will rise again and He will return to His Father's right hand. And Jesus looks forward with joy to His return to the heavenly realm and the glory that he enjoys in that place. Paul goes on to write in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Jesus approaches the final hours before His death. He does so with a laser-like focus on the work that He is accomplishing. And He does so with a longing expectation of the glory that awaits Him as He returns to the Father. As He is seated at His Father's right hand and receives eternal praise from everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
Jesus anticipates and prays to that end. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus anticipates that reunion. He has been, in a sense, separated from his Father. In fact, as he hangs on the cross, he will be very much separated from his Father as he bears the wrath of God for sin that he is bearing in his body. And he looks forward to returning to his Father's presence and the glory that awaits him there. But there's hope for us even in that. The fact that Jesus anticipates and has returned to to the glory of heaven. Our future is tied to Christ. Those who are in Christ, our future is tied to Him. Our salvation is tied to the work that He accomplished on the cross. We have been given to the Son by the Father. The Father possesses us. The Son possesses us. We are His. And Jesus, having been glorified, guarantees that our future glorification is certain. Think of Romans 8. We have the promise of God that those whom God has called and justified, He will and has glorified. We are in Christ we can anticipate our future glorification, our enjoyment of the presence of our Heavenly Father, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we rejoice in His presence, as we ascribe to Him the glory that is due to His name. So what are we to make of of this section? As we look in, we get a glimpse at this, communion with these two members of the Godhead. What is what does all this mean for us? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, as I've said, as I mentioned earlier, I think we should marvel at the glory of what we are observing. God speaking with God. We get an insight into the the purpose and plan of God and it's it's staggering. And so we should worship God, all three persons of the Trinity, for the work that they have accomplished. God deserves our worship because of the the accomplishment of His plan to save sinners. Many of us having been recipients of, of His gracious working in that plan. Marvel at the glory of, of what we read here. Worship God for what He has accomplished. Understand the connection between Jesus' prayer and us. I've tried to draw some of these out for us already, that the work that Jesus is anticipating doing, His glorification, all of these, we're tied to what happens to Christ. We die with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We will be glorified with Christ. Understand our our connection to Christ. Our hope is tied to Christ. But also understand the connection between Jesus' prayers, or Jesus' prayer and our prayers. We talked earlier of 
the model prayer that he offers, offered to the disciples and to us, what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Those petitions that we pray in that prayer and, and other prayers that we pray, the petitions that we make, our hope to have our prayers heard and answered is tied to the work that Jesus is anticipating in his prayer as he communes with his Father here. We see the glory of God who set his love on individuals. And Jesus came in order that those individuals that the Father had given him would be saved through his work. We can pray confidently because of the work that Jesus has accomplished. We know that when we go to our Heavenly Father in Christ, we know that He will hear us. We can also be confident in the midst of fear and anxiety. What causes fear and anxiety in our lives? I think in many ways, uncertainty causes fear and anxiety. Uncertainty about the future. Uncertainty about God. Perhaps uncertainty of God's love for us. Uncertainty about a number of different things leads us to fear and anxiety. But reading this prayer is like listening in on a conversation between two experts at something. We come at it with no understanding and no knowledge. And I speak with people in this church and you know, who are engineers. Many of you are engineers and have that sort of mind. I, I, know, I don't understand none of that. But you listen to two experts talk and you feel like they've got this figured out. They understand what's going on. And here we get a glimpse at at two people who understand what's going on. They've got it figured out. God the Father and God the Son, God the Spirit, who we've seen mentioned several times in preceding chapters. God has things figured out as it relates to, to this world, as it relates to history, the future, our lives, our salvation. God has it figured out. When our hope is in God, we are in His hand. As, we, as, as Jesus taught earlier in, in this Gospel, we are in His Father's hand and no one is going to pluck us out. He is strong. He is powerful. He is wise. And our future is certain in Christ. So as we consider just this first part, and, and much of this will even be fleshed out as Jesus continues to pray, in light of, this first section. But before we get to all of that, we can pause and, and, and worship God for who He is and rest in Him for who He is and what He has accomplished on our behalf. Our Father, we thank You for the great hope that this passage gives us. We have a window into the working of Your plan. We thank You for Your wisdom and power in accomplishing our salvation. We thank You that 
our sin has been dealt with. Your righteousness and justice has been already meted out on Christ. We thank You for Your love and grace and mercy to us. We were former enemies, but You have made us Your friends. You have reconciled us to You. We thank You that the great hope... We thank You for the great hope that we have in Christ. Thank You that our future is tied to Christ. So that we can be confident. That we can trust and rest in Him. We have no reason to fear. Give us the ability to believe that. Because so often we, our hearts are filled with fear and anxiety. We pray that Your Spirit would remind us that You are able to take care of us. You are wise and powerful and loving. And we can trust You. We can rest in You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.